This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we will be joined in just a moment by two of the protesters who were at L3 Harris last week and were arrested. Let me see if we have them on the phone. We've had a bit of a technical glitch, but not too bad, all things considered. I think we have with us uh, Clara Wagner. Clara, are you there? Clara, yep, I am. Thank you very much. Do please speak right into your microphone on your phone. That would be helpful. Uh, you were arrested last week at L3 Harris. Why were you there? What was the purpose of the demonstration? Um, we were there for a few things. First, to disrupt some of the work that was going on, disrupt the exorbitant profits that L3 makes, also to bring awareness to L3's presence in Northampton and to get the public more aware of, of everything that they're doing and all the violence that they contribute to. Um, and also just to, yeah, create solidarity, create com- community, um, and, and, and show up with each other. And Zara, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Zara Farine? You- uh, yeah, I'm here as well. Okay. Would you care to add to what Clara just said? Um, no, that that's about right. You know, we wanted to cost a little something to the company, you know, maybe kind of get workers to think a little bit about, you know, what we're saying. And, and you know, we believe strongly in the public's right to know that this place is there. Um, in Northampton. I think a lot of people weren't aware of that. Let me ask you this. There have been various charges brought against, what, five or six of you who were arrested? What are the charges? Yeah, so there were six of us in total. Uh, It was resisting arrest, trespassing in public, uh, on private property, and disturbing the peace. You know, none of those really resonate with us, but but those are the charges we're facing. And you're due back in court when? December December 14th is when we have our pretrial. I'm interested to know, uh, was the demonstration, this protest, organized by specific groups, or were you there as individuals? Tell me more about that, if you would, please. Let's start with Clara, then we'll go to uh, to Zara. Yeah, so for the most part, this is organized through Demilitarized Western Mass, um, a group that's been organizing against L3 for a handful of years and has done that in in a handful of ways, like teach-ins and standouts and movie screenings. So they, I think that was kind of our, our affinity group of core organizers, but we also had a lot of people step into roles and help out with organizing that hadn't previ- previously organized with female and just felt, felt spoken to by the call and wanted to contribute. So let me turn, if I might, from uh, Clara to Zara Farine. Uh, I'm sorry, I've... I've omitted your last name. I didn't mean to. Parvez, is am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, that's right. Uh, tell me this. How do you measure the success of this action? <clears throat> yeah, well, for us, you know, there was, um, I, I would say, number one, a lot of solidarity created, like Clara mentioned. Um, there were 30, 40, 40 of us that were there, and I think we all felt really good about it. Um, you know, there were a number of workers, um, <clears throat> I, I don't know, you know, at least 50 to 100 probably at some point who, you know, encountered us and, you know, took our flyers and had to think about, uh, you know, what, what our message was. Um, you know, frankly, we did want to disrupt the work a little bit for a few hours, and I think we did that um, and raised a lot of awareness. You know, the, the other thing I want to say is that, you know, it's not necessarily instrumental, right? For me, sometimes you do an action because you're conscious compels you to do it and that's what you need to do and it just felt like the right kind of moral thing even if it's symbolic 
And you can't underestimate the power of direct action. You know, we can't say what's going to result from all this. Let me ask you this. Uh, The article in the Daily Hampshire Gazette spent a lot of time talking about the uh, Hamas-Israel war. Uh, And I'm not sure whether that is or is not, in your judgment, connected with this action. If it is, I'd like to hear about it. If it isn't, I'd like some clarification on that. Let's start with uh, Clara, who is a a psychotherapist, we should note, a member of Demilitarized Western Mass, and then we'll go back to Zara Parvez. Clara? Yeah, and I think in in my mind and in many of the minds of the people who who organized, that was really central um, in terms of, like, meaning, right? And we started planning the action far before kind of this most recent genocidal violence started. Um, And, you know, for as long as I've been a member of of demilitarized Western Mass, we have been talking about the fact that L3 supplies um, weapons and optics technology to... Um, to the Israeli IDF and to checkpoints in Gaza, and that um, both both now and for for a long time, L three has been a part of of that violence and that oppression. And so, our our resistance against L three is also resistance against the the violence and the oppression towards the Palestinian people. Any thoughts about the terrorist attack on Israel by Hamas? I mean, we are in terms of what? Yeah, go ahead. I mean, we are peace activists and, um, you know, we've all been longtime supporters of of Palestinian rights. But I also want to be clear, you know, that um, we're also very focused on weapons sales to Saudi Arabia, to Morocco, which is also an occupying country, to Turkey, which inflicts violence on Kurds, Armenians and other groups, you know, most recently to Ethiopia. So I think, you know, we are human rights activists concerned about violence against civilians in all in all situations. Let me ask you this. What happens next in terms of this court case, and who's your lawyer, and what defenses, if any, if you care to comment on that? Uh, let's start with uh, Zara Parvez, and then we'll go back, uh, we'll go back to Clara. Uh, yeah, so our, um, our attorney is Attorney Luke Ryan, um, you know, who has a lot of uh, experience, I believe, with, with movements. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't remember the questions exactly. But um, uh, whether or not there is a defense that is going to be offered that you care to share, you don't obviously you don't have to at this point. Yeah, we're still discussing, you know, what's best for our goals and, and for the movement. Um, so we're, yeah, this, it's kind of still under discussion how we're going to go forward. I mean, certainly, you know, we don't believe any of us were resisting arrest. Um, you know, it's unclear whether this was actually public property or private property. And I, I think, um, you know, L3 is saying it was private. Um, according to our understanding, it was not. And, you know, I'll just say the irony of being charged with disturbing the peace is, is, is pretty deep. <laughs> uh, Zara, do you care to make a final co- comment? Or Clara, either one of you? Clara? I would just welcome people, if they're interested in learning more or getting involved in the future, that they can reach out to us. We're on um, Instagram. We're on, we have a Gmail. Our Gmail is demilitarizedwesternmass at gmail.com. And I'm 90% sure our Instagram is at demilitarizedwesternmass. Okay. We have been speaking with Sarah Parvez, who's a sociology professor, and with uh, uh, Clara, uh, who is a psychotherapist, a member of Demilitarized Western Mass. I believe you're both part of Demilitarized Western Mass. They were at the demonstration and were arrested last week. Clara, what are the charges against you? Um, I got resisting arrest and disturbing the peace. And Zara, the charges against you? Uh, Resisting arrest, trespassing, and disturbing the peace. 
We're going to leave it there. We'll be speaking further as this criminal prosecution goes on. Thank you both for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank Thank you. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary, and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. If you love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop. Franklin County has a vibrant history of farming. At the Franklin County House of Correction, we bring that history to life with education and vocational programs around farming and gardening. Incarcerated men and women learn to work an active organic garden. Best of all, they harvest, they send home to help support and feed their families. This is Sheriff Chris Donnellan, and I can't think of better therapy than farming and feeding your family. That's the history of Franklin County, and we honor it at the Sheriff's Office every day. Today and every day, millions of people do business with co-ops, food co-ops, credit unions, workers co-ops, energy co-ops, farmer co-ops. Go co-op and together we can build resilient, inclusive communities. The Old Creamery Co-op is a country store and gathering place with a world-class deli, kitchen, and bakery. Member-owned since 2012 for affordable groceries for local produce, crafts, and snacks. Stop at the shop with the cow on top. The Old Creamery Co-op in Cummington. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. It is Mayor's Monday on WHMP and Talk the Talk, and we welcome back to our show the mayor of East Hampton, Nicole LaChapelle. Madam Mayor, I was thinking about you yesterday and the time we would have today on the show, and I was in particular thinking about what it meant to you as an administrator, as a mayor, as an elected official, and as a person that you have announced that you would not be running for re-election in East Hampton as mayor next time. And I'm wondering whether in some ways that affects your ability to be the mayor and to be the leader, and or whether on the other side of the coin, it's actually liberating and uh, uh, allows you to be more of a leader. And I'd appreciate your thoughts about that as you go forward for the remainder of your term. Definitely on the liberating side. Uh, we have a lot of projects going on in East Hampton, and I've really been very proud of them. Uh, the team in City Hall have been great in the boards. And this, for me, it, it is liberating to focus on something that is so important for East Hampton, and that's housing. Um, and that's the, you know, my primary focus from now until 2025. Um, I had, I didn't realize how liberating it would be. I made a decision like the end of 2018, beginning of 2019, 
um, not to go past what um, eight years. So if the voters would have me, and uh, so I ended up getting the last four, the first four-year term, which will be my last. When you say your primary focus is housing, what does that mm-hmm. mean? Yeah, so we, um, in the city, we built our own pipeline of housing. Um, we did a housing production study, uh, the city planner, GPW. Uh, really, we sat down and looked at where housing was most likely and worked with interested developers to help them find a site that was most suited to their project. Uh, we've got four in the pipeline now, and it's my mission to go out and find financial which, uh, financial stacking on top of what they have, whether that be grants, whether that be tax incentives, uh, whether that be uh, low-cost um, low loans for tenants that would be there for retrofitting, for energy, tax credits as far as the low-income tax credits, and and maybe some new market tax credits, which which lend themselves more to a commercial or mixed use. Uh, Mayor Nicole LaChapelle, you indicate that there are four projects. Can you give us some sense of the size mm-hmm. of the projects? How many units we're talking about? And we're talking about houses. We're we talking about apartments. Tell us, tell us a bit more yeah. about the projects, if you would, please. Sure. So, just a quick overview. Um, one is at uh, on Main Street. Uh, 384. It's a large parcel of land, and we're working um, with a great affordable housing partner and some really interesting uh, developers, them being uh, uh, Kestrel Land Trust, Mass Audubon is, is a part of that team, and that will be about, I'm going to lose, let, don't quote me, about 50 to 60 um, apartments uh, affordable will be a part of that mix. They build on the front of that parcel. It's about 50 acres. And then the back um, will be uh, given over to Mass Audubon for trails and keeping the space open. It's really a, a gorgeous piece of property. Uh, second one is the Tasty Top property, um, which has been a little longer in committee. It's a complicated piece of property both to build on but also the community connection to it. Um, that could be as many as 200 units over four phases. Um, I'm not sure if we'll get to 200 units there. And then the third project um, is the three schools that are under uh, contract with an affordable housing developer. And they are looking at 69 units at the three schools. One is Maple and then Center and Pepin. They bookcase our downtown area. And then the fourth one is Ferry Street, the end of uh, the Ferry Street um, uh, project, which is on um, it's on the other side of the canal from what has been done already. And we look for apartments there as well. Um, that's a little early on, but but I'm you know, we're expecting between eighty and ninety units of housing there with affordable as well as market rate. So the housing production right now is apartments. When we looked at our housing studies and talked to the state, we're, um, the last time we actually put together <coughs> a housing project that had more than, say, five units was back in 2015. So we're way overdue. Um, and, you know, they're very complex uh, projects. They take a lot of time, a lot of phone calls, um, a lot of writing, letter support, whatnot, to get them 
to, to get them through. So right now, it we're expecting between now and 2029, I think it will shake out to just under 300 apartments that come on in a phased way. I heard in my mind when you said 200 mm-hmm. units in the yeah. former Tasty Top property, which has mm-hmm. been under discussion for many years, what to do with that property. Uh, right. And I can hear the voices of protest saying, wait a second, how is the infrastructure of East Hampton ever going to accommodate 200 units in that property that's really, I mean, in some ways it's brilliant, it's so close to downtown. On the other hand, it's, uh, mm-hmm. you can just imagine, I can imagine people protesting the potential congestion. Can you tell us how you're going to deal with what I expect will be that kind of opposition? And we've seen that um, kind of opposition. Uh, exactly. You, you really described it well. Um, we've also seen some opposition on the use of that land and putting buildings on it. It abuts conservation areas, um, the back 11 area, area ah, the back 11 acres will be in conservation land um, because of the nature of the soil and wetlands. The part of housing, housing, housing is also congestion, congestion, congestion. And we're working with MassDOT and the developer to address that. Um, in the next three or four years, we'll see some substantial upgrades to that section of Route 10. Um, some of that is starting now. It's in a design process uh, to look at how to, not just for this um, development, but really that whole stretch of developer, as well as pedestrian safety. We lost two of our residents tragically um, to a car accident um, at that stretch. And MassDOT has been working with our DPW to put in some really substantial temporary um, pedestrian safety uh, improvements there. Uh, we just got the, the go-ahead. I prob- we're hoping to get that in early next spring. And then the project all along will the long-term solutions and projects will continue. But MassDOT, Federal Department of Transportation grants, pulling in um, traffic consultants or whatnot. I mean, that goes hand in hand with these um, with these housing developments. Um, just as you said, our infrastructure is getting better, but around Route 10, um, it wasn't built for highway business. So we have our our ears to the ground, feet on the ground, looking for infrastructure money to get that work done. Mayor Nicole Chappelle, does this uh, series of projects, there are four of them, mm-hmm. do they yeah. require uh, city council or other elected officials' uh, approval or involvement? Yes. Um, city council improvement, it depends on the project for the three schools City Hall, uh, City Council was heavily involved in reviewing the draft RFP that was put together. Also, the impact of downtown, uh, how the buildings would be configured. We needed their approval to go forward with that RFP. Um, for Tasty Top, a lot of involvement with uh, the planning board and what that will look like, mitigating traffic, but also really developing a private development to as best as possible for the, for the town, the expectations of what it looks like, but also that traffic. Um, when we're looking at 
the project out on Main Street that will be planning, that will be conservation, um, and that will be city council. Um, we think with we, we need to do some uh, line redrawing out there. Um, and then I'm trying to think of the other schools. Ferry Street has, is completely permitted. So that, that's ready to start on the, the developer side. Um, you know, I think that I, I have to kind of put out there, especially on Tasty Top um, and with Ferry Street back in 2018, these parcels are owned by private entities. So they have bought them and, and we're working with a private entity. So f- how we direct or how we put rules or, or conditions around uh, the projects are, I don't want to say limited by law, but they're limited by law and bylaws and um, the rules of planning for the state. So we're really working with those private owners to get to some kind of middle ground where everyone can kind of see the, a piece of their vision in these projects. And that's, that's really challenging. Can, um, can any of these I mean, projects be completed uh, or started, for that matter, before the end of your term, which is we, you still have you still have a ways to go. Two years, right? I mean, two years. Um, Ferry Street will definitely start, and and maybe part of it will be like he, uh, the developer is on their third building, and then the the project I'm talking about is on the other side of the canal, which is just rubble. Um, so that there could be a building there that's ready for. Occupation. These are the, um, these are the old industrial mills sites. Yep. I I, I yep. would I would like to know this: Is this plan for expanded housing in East Hampton? Are these plans? Is this part of an economic development plan as well? Because it seems to me that bringing all these people in actually has a significant economic impact. I th- would think for the for the betterment of the town of the city. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I mean, we we actually have one um, apartment building, 19 apartments, five affordable right downtown. Um, and to put that with the schools that will be opening, I think their first occupation um, uh, certificate uh, is 2018. It's walking traffic. You know, East Hampton has, you know, the nice, I don't know how, how much forethought, but it, it, they have a lot of basic and um, and I can't say that amenities. Amenities. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's kind of what and, ha- it was like. Right. Something that was in biology in yeah. high school. Amenities. And and, and, and you know that <laughs> that didn't go. I mean, science didn't go that well for me. So. <laughs> yeah, me either. Yeah. No. Well, it was the Hindenburg. Yeah, no. Oh, the amenities. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but the right downtown. So you've got the senior center right downtown. You've got a pharmacy right downtown. You have a grocery store. Um, you have shops that are reasonably priced, uh, family dollar. You have dentists. You have chiropractor. We'll have some more medical services. And this is all on Union and Cottage and some on Main. So to put people in the middle of services but also a pretty cool place to live was very thoughtful. We really wanted to, to focus on those, and we saw the schools as our biggest hope, and then the development at 19 Cottage Street, uh, the building that used to be Jim's uh, Package Store, was an, an added bonus. The, the owner decided to do that project sooner rather than later. Um, but absolutely, we tried to put the housing spread out as much as it was under our control 
throughout the city. So in the center, you've got the schools. When you um, say the schools, the you, when you say the schools, what do you mean? Explain yeah. that to our listeners, please. Um, the three elementary schools that were over a hundred, that were hundred years old each, um, that were um, decommissioned because we built a new school um, out on Park Street. So we were using those elementary schools for children up until about a year ago. Um, and now they're empty. You're seeing some movement there, kind of site prep, and there's a whole bunch of lines on the road. And um, so we're putting, you know, 69 units on either side, you know, split on either side of our downtown district, um, which is just fabulous. A political question before we run. Any, mm. any information you can share or that you've heard about who might want to take over as the mayor or try to be elected mayor of the city after your term ends? Yeah, I, I mean, I would, I, I wouldn't, I, I don't feel comfortable naming names because I think it's a whisper on Facebook, which I just try to, try to ignore and not get involved in. Um, but I, I think you'll see some familiar names. Um, I would not be surprised if they're um, on current elected boards, school committee, um, city council. And I think we might have a couple of surprises. Uh, something like me in 2017, first time running for municipal office. Um, but it's two years away, and I think we all are, are measured in thinking that we can predict anything past today. We just don't know what's going to happen. Um, but, yeah, there are definitely people looking at it. And one of the reasons why, I, when I made the decision, I became more and more public with 20, 2025, I'm going to exit stage right, um, because the job is 24-7, and you really have to plan a, a new life, right, a new a new schedule and consider what your life is now balance it. And I hope people do that very, conf- you know, um, very thoroughly. And I'm confident that we're going to we have a great group of candidates. And I want to congratulate you, Mayor Nicole LaChapelle, for a political answer that managed to really sound like you were answering the question without giving any information. That was brilliant, really. Was masterful. <laughs> I mean, six years in, six years in. Like, I mean, I've learned something. I didn't know. I picked up a couple of things. Yeah. We have been speaking with East Hampton Mayor Nicole Achapelle. This is Mayor's Monday on WHMP. Madam Mayor, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you thank being you with both. us today. Yeah. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Plans are moving forward for a new hotel in Northampton. The Northampton Planning Board has approved a special permit for a proposed 109-room hotel and a 31-unit residential building at 115 Conn Street, formerly the site of the Daily Hampshire Gazette office building. The project is expected to significantly increase traffic in the area, and the Planning Board had delayed their approval of the project pending adequate stormwater management plans. The permit was approved under three conditions, that it includes electric vehicle chargers, that a portion of the parking lot be replaced with grass, and that the foundation for the building be poured before a certificate of occupancy is granted. Five people were transported to Athol Hospital after a tractor lost control at a hayride and went into the pond at Silver Lake. This happened in Athol Friday night around 7.45 p.m. Athol police, fire, and EMS crews responded to the haunted hayrides, and the five people who sustained minor injuries were transported to the hospital. The incident is still under investigation, and the hayrides were canceled on Saturday. A two-alarm house fire broke out in Shelburne Falls Road in Conway Saturday night. 
While no one was injured, a kitten was rescued by a firefighter. The garage where the fire is believed to have started was burned down, and the adjacent section of the home sustained significant damage, and most of the residents' possessions were destroyed. Mostly cloudy today, scattered showers, a little bit of a breeze, and a high of 56 to 60. Chance for an early evening sprinkle, otherwise variable clouds tonight. Evening temperatures in the 40s and 50s, an overnight low of 38 to 44. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, 56 to 60, low 60s and dry on Wednesday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Do you think the Amish sleep in horse-drawn beds? Whatever beds they sleep in, the Amish build beds that are simply beautiful with subtle arts and crafts touches. There's an old Amish proverb, the most important things in your home are people. Maybe so, but those people need a place to sleep. Amish made beds from Talon Furniture. So good looking, so well built. Talon has Amish beds ready for delivery or order in the wood and finish you want. Then, we have beds made in Vermont that have all of the craftsmanship of Amish beds, made from cherry or maple, but these Vermont-built beds are just a touch more elegant in their design. How about an upholstered bed? An upholstered headboard and frame. It's a really nice look and feel. Allen Furniture's upholstered beds come in dozens of fabrics and leathers. In between today and tomorrow, there will be time in bed. Spending that time in a nice bed just feels good. Come to Talon Furniture little bed boutique just down the hill from Amherst College. Today and every day, millions of people do business with co-ops, food co-ops, credit unions, workers co-ops, farmer co-ops. Go co-op and together we can build resilient, inclusive communities. In 1918, four farmers with $50 started the Greenfield Farmers Cooperative Exchange. Today, the Greenfield Farmers Cooperative Exchange is owned and run by over a thousand local farmers and everyone is welcome to shop their stock of 50,000 farm and garden and pet products. When you're going through a tough time and want to talk with someone, talk with an experienced mental health care provider at ServiceNet. Talk therapy, medication management, and other treatment options. ServiceNet therapists and our psychiatry team work together to help you feel better. Having services all in one place can make a world of difference. At ServiceNet, we have your back. Call ServiceNet at 584-6855. The care you need is right here, all in one place, at ServiceNet. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. The tragic shooting in Holyoke just a few days ago, gunfire on the streets that randomly hit a woman eight months pregnant, seriously harming her and causing the death of that baby. That incident has focused and I hope for the better, our attention on the scourge of guns and death because of guns in our communities, in Holyoke, in Springfield, and other surrounding areas as well. To help us understand this issue, we are joined by Dr. Brian Williams, who is an Air Force Academy graduate, a Harvard-trained surgeon, a former congressional health policy advisor, a recognized leader in gun violence and structural racism and health equity, who has a new book, the title of which, The Bodies Keep Coming. The Bodies Keep Coming. 
dispatches from a black trauma surgeon on racism, violence, and how we heal. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for being with us, and thank you for this book, The Bodies Keep Coming. Why do the bodies keep coming? Thank you very much for having me today, Bill. And uh, I should mention that I'm also, I was born in Chicopee, Mass., so not, th- not too far from where y'all are hanging out right now. <laughs> wow, I didn't know that. I'm sorry I overlooked yeah, that. No, that just hit me when you were talking about that. I, I should have brought that up. But yeah, my dad served at Westover Air Force Base, and that's where I was born. Oh, for how long? He was there three years. I left when I was young. I have very little memory of being there. Yeah, my, my memories there mostly are about protesting there and getting people out of jail for protesting. But hey, we all have our experiences at Westover. They just vary. <laughs> <laughs> but to answer your question about why the bodies keep coming, um, it's as a trauma surgeon working in the hospital on the front lines of gun violence and health inequity, uh, I began to realize that there was only so much I could do in the hospital, that the interventions needed to occur further upstream in the community. And if we, I, we as a community, as a society, didn't direct resources and attention there, then the bodies would keep coming. And that's why I chose that title for the book. I want to stay with the title of the book for a moment because gun violence has been front and center. It waxes and wanes as a political issue and as a, a, a national, with regard to its national attention. But for decades, the end of the story is also the beginning of the story and the middle of the story, and it is today's story, which is the bodies keep coming. You are involved and have been for quite some time now at the intersection of uh, public policy and gun violence. And I go back to my question, if with all this attention that we've given it, why do the bodies keep coming? Yeah, when I read the book, uh, I I recognize that that seems hopeless, that after all this time, nothing seems to change, but there is hope. And this book is meant to be a roadmap towards that. And we talk about gun violence specifically. Part of that is recognizing that we do not have a gun violence problem, Bill. We have multiple types of gun violence problems, whether it's suicide, homicide, mass shootings, uh, intimate partner violence. And each has different root causes requiring different solutions. Therefore, we can't use a one-size-fits-all address this, we have to sort of look at these as different types of public health problems and how we're going to uh, address that. And that's what I really wanted to bring out in the book, using my experience as a trauma surgeon, but also as a military veteran who is trained on these weapons, as a survivor who has lost family members to gun violence, but also as a scholar who has studied this, and most importantly, as a you know, a public policy expert, someone who's worked on federal legislation to save lives. And I wanted to put it in a package that anybody could access, not just an academic, but someone who has zero experience in the hospital, uh, doesn't even need to have a college education, but just say, look, it seems hopeless, but there are things we can do to save lives. Two different strands of our conversation so far today, Doctor. One is, what is the public policy response to gun violence? The second is, of course, this book you've written, which I think is gripping because it really does 
bring forth your personal experience here. I, I often ask authors if they'd be kind enough to read a bit so our listeners can hear what the book sounds like. And I'm wondering if you would be kind enough to read a, the three graphs. Uh, the chapter title is Traumatic Arrest, and that would give our authors a sense of the work you did and what brings you to this to this place in your life and with regard to the future of gun violence and or the attempts to stop it. Could you share that with us? Absolutely. I'm happy to read this. This is Chapter 8, Traumatic Arrest. Everything happened all at once, and much of it was a blur. But I remember the blood. Lots of blood. The first police officer arrived at 8.45 p.m. The trauma nurses had placed him on a stretcher like a sack of potatoes and sped around the corner from the ambulance bay, but one gave him chest compressions. A gaggle of cops with assault weapons slung over their shoulders trailed after the stretcher. Gunshot wound to the chest, one said, as I kept pace alongside the speeding gurney. Despite the man's midnight blue uniform, it took a moment for me to realize he was a cop. I didn't have a frame of reference for what was unfolding before me. Gunshot victims were routine in my world. But a bullet-riddled cop shadowed by an armed posse? I've been through a lot of wild trauma activations, but I had never seen that before. It didn't make sense. I removed my white coat, draped it over a chair as I entered the resuscitation bay, and snatched a pair of purple nitrile gloves from the red crash cart. Vanessa, the head trauma nurse, redirected the ensemble headfirst through the sliding glass doors into Trauma Bay 1, where a dozen nurses, doctors, and trainees took center stage. Surveying the scene, I processed a flood of information while a quartet of gloved hands grasped the edges of the sheet beneath the officer. Ready? Three, two, one, lift. How many years did you do this work? Uh, I finished medical school in 2001, started my surgery residency then. So and I finished my residency and fellowship in 2010. So I've been dealing with gun violence since medical school. Uh, but as an attending, being the one leading the trauma teams, uh, I started as a fellow in 2008. So long enough to have seen probably thousands of victims. And I wanted to use that experience in the book, Bill. I wanted to use some storytelling and a personal narrative to bring you into this world, to show you what it's like, but also do some teaching with some stats and scientific research, and to give a roadmap to how we can be all be part of the solution to end the scourge. We are speaking with Dr. Brian Williams. His new book is The Bodies Keep Coming. Dispatches from a Black Trauma Surgeon on Racism, Violence, and How We Heal. Okay, what's the answer? How do we address gun violence? How do we heal? Writ large, what are the answers? You indicate there's not one, fits, one size fits all as an answer, but what are the answers? Well, one answer I point to is how public policy can play a role in keeping our communities safe from gun violence. And I will point to last year, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which was the most significant gun safety bill passed in a generation. And I had the good fortune to be working in Congress in the office of the senator that led that bill at the time. Uh, so I had a chance to be part of what we can do at the federal level to save lives. And that bill 
know, enhanced background checks, money for community violence intervention programs. It will save thousands of lives. But then there's what do we? There's more to be done. There are certain things that people agree on: raising the limit, limit middle, uh, minimum age to purchase a weapon. Uh, for example, if you raise it to 21, what does that what does that mean for saving lives? People 18 to 21, firearms are the leading cause of death in that age group. They're committing suicide with firearms at a great 40% rate greater than over the past decade. And they also cre- uh, commit firearm homicide at three times the rate of people 21 and older. So raising the age to 21 is something that's simple that most people agree on, which is one possible policy solution we can use to save of lives, uh, and there's, but there's so much more. It's, it's, it gets, there's many more things we can do. That's just one example. I just, this is Buzz, Doctor uh, Williams, I, and I just want to point out uh, we have some friends visiting from London, and right now there's a controversial bill in London to ban certain kinds of knives. Since 1996, while shotguns and rifles are allowed for hunting in the UK, uh, all handguns have been banned since '96. We have more mass shootings this year than we have days that have passed in the year. In England, there have been seven mass shootings since 1996. Every time this conversation happens, I just think the solution is just so simple to regulate firearms, as you say, for people under 21. But um, do you foresee a situation in which politically we're going to be able to get those people who are avid gun owners to understand that assault weapons and the like, there's no place for them in our society? Uh, absolutely. I, we have to, gun violence is it's the interstitial issue of our time, right? Uh, economic status, race, ethnicity, where you live, where you, where you work. I mean, in some ways, all of us are uh, at risk of gun violence or know, or know someone who is at, at risk of being injured uh, by firearms. And uh, I will say there are gun owners that are committed to keeping our communities safe, uh, but it's very complex, right? I mean, gun ownership is part of the identity of, of this country. So we have to approach it with that understanding, but that does not mean we are powerless and without hope in this matter. Most Americans do agree on several wide ranging issue means of keeping our community safe from gun violence. Uh, Politically, there are the minority of, of people in Congress that are putting the, 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 the needs and desires of the gun lobby over that of their constituents. And we as voters have a say in who we send to Congress to represent us. We're speaking with Dr. Brian Williams. His new book is The Bodies Keep Coming, Dispatches from a Black Trauma Surgeon on Racism, Violence, and How We Heal. And when we come back, I'm going to ask this question. What about ghost guns? And why do we think the young people are going to pay any attention to these new laws that we want to pass? We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Every time you open your energy bill, you cringe. And with good reason, because you're paying too much. The easy answer is solar. And taking advantage of solar energy with Franklin First Federal Credit Union is easy. Our solar loan puts solar on the table. And a local expert can show you all the ways it pays to install solar. Visit franklinfirst.org slash solarloans for more details. That's franklinfirst.org slash solarloans. Franklin First Federal Credit Union, federally insured by NCUA. 
What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Air Force Academy graduate and Harvard-trained surgeon and longtime ER doc, Brian Williams, whose new book is The Bodies Keep Coming, Dispatches from a Black Trauma Surgeon on Racism, Violence, and How We Heal. During the break, Buzz and I and you, doctor, were talking about the number of guns in the United States, and Buzz pointed out 400 million guns in a country with a population of 340 million people, more guns than people. How in life are we ever going to come to grips with that fact and the prevalence and the availability of guns? More guns than people, but even beyond that, Bill, it's um, it's about 80-20. So 20% of the population owns 80% of the, of the firearms. So there are folks out there with 10, 20 weapons in, in their uh, possession. And some of those are family heirlooms that are passed down. But the, the reality is there are more guns than people, and the minority of the population has much of, of those weapons. Uh, and as in the book, as I'm talking about uh, gun violence and firearm policy, I use that as a means to draw you into this world, uh, but to expand the scope of what we talked about so we can talk about some much bigger issues in society. Uh, healthcare injustice, structural racism, endemic violence, public policy, and how all those intersect. Because you may think that for gun violence, it's separate from that, but these are all in- interconnected. And if we can address things like structural racism and how uh, segregated neighborhoods lead to endemic violence. Uh, what's the solution to that? Like, if we radically invest in communities, education, economics, infrastructure, uh, raise the standard of living, violence goes down. And I use the stats to show that. Like, the Department of Justice has those statistics. So that is one way to reduce gun violence without talking about taking away guns. What about ghost guns? So ghost guns, uh, for your listeners that... These are print, for our listeners, these are guns that can be 
printed off a printer, a home printer, um, and are untraceable. They don't have uh, serial numbers and the like, and they are now becoming relatively easy to produce. How do we address that? Yeah, so the ghost guns are, are, are making the gun trafficking problem, the, in, the internal, you know, within the country, drug tra- uh, gun trafficking problem much worse. Uh, there's illegal trafficking of guns that do have serial numbers, and you have this on top of that. So the ease of access to firearms is increasing. And with ease of access to firearms, you can expect, as we are seeing now, as Buzz has mentioned, a record number of mass shootings so far this year. Uh, I am suspect we'll probably have a record number of firearm deaths over this year from all types, suicides, homicides, mass shootings, intimate partner violence. So these contribute to the problem in a way that makes it even more difficult to do what we can to keep our communities safe. But again, we are not powerless. We are not without hope. Send the proper leaders to Congress to change the narrative, change the laws. We can keep ourselves safe. I don't mean to be uh, negative, but once upon a time, for 10 years, we had an assault weapons ban in this country. It expired under its own terms, and it hasn't been renewed, and mass shootings have proliferated. Talk me off this ledge. (laughs) I'm going to do my best, uh, Bill, uh, because you need to keep your your show going. I I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) So we had the assault weapons ban for 10 years, and here's what happened. Uh, death due to mass shootings decreased significantly. It, it, the ban expired and those have increased. That just, that just kind of makes sense. They, they kind of go together. And the point here, a couple of points to make here, we have had a ban on assault weapons before. Uh, we can do it again. It's not something new. I, as an Air Force cadet at the Academy, we trained on these weapons. I trained on the M16, which is the uh, military version of the AR-15. At the end of the day, we put them in secure storage. We didn't take them back to our dorm room. We knew that these were weapons of war that did not belong in the hands of untrained civilians in, in our city streets. So banning them will save lives. So reinstating that ban will save lives. But here's another thing, Bill. When that ban was in place, assault rifles were 5% of all firearms sales. Now they are 20%. Right. We are going in the wrong direction. So we really need to think about what sort of society we want to live in with such free access to weapons that can cause so much death and destruction with very little training. I, I do wish we had more time because red flag laws and the and mental health and the issues surrounding mental health. Mental health seems to be sort of the kissing cousin of gun violence often. Yeah, and I, we, we have to be careful how... They frequently use mental health as a scapegoat for mass mm-hmm. shootings. But here's the reality. Most people with mental health diagnoses or disease are the victims of gun violence, not the perpetrators. So mental health is part of it, but um, we need to look at those as the victims, not the perpetrators, and uh, look at the holistic view of preventing gun violence. Sometimes you need a hammer. Sometimes you need a screwdriver. And that's one where we need a screwdriver to solve the problem. Okay. Give us a minute on why you actually are optimistic, because I'm still standing here (laughs) looking down at the abyss. Help me. Because I've seen 
just being a trauma surgeon, working with people that go to work every day trying to save lives, and are still motivated to do that every single day. Uh, knowing that having lost family members, I have to continue this work to keep others safe. And also during my time in Washington, having a chance to work on the bipartisan gun safety bill, it was it was monumental. There are good people going to work every day trying to keep keep ourselves safe at the local, state, and federal level. So I'm hopeful, optimistic, and you all can be part of that solution. We have been speaking with Dr. Brian Williams. His new book is The Bodies Keep Coming, Dispatches from a Black Trauma Surgeon on Racism, Violence, and How We Heal. The blurb on the top, I think it's right, riveting, this is a page-turner. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for your book, and thank you for your time and insights. This book will make a difference, and we really appreciate it and you. Bill and Buzz, thank you very much for having me on the show. And check out brianwilliamsmd.com for more. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. Caring for someone with cancer is hard. You're so busy taking care of someone else, you have no idea how you feel. There's so much you can't say. You run on adrenaline. You're worried you're going to burn out. Cancer Connection offers support groups just for caregivers, exercise classes to blow off steam, even Reiki. It's all free. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton radio group station. It's 10 o'clock. Over Gaza, and any time now, ground troops may go in with a mission to destroy Hamas. This soldier says he's ready. We are ready, and we want to do it, to finish it, because they cut our friend's head, and they killed too many people here in Israel. The humanitarian crisis is worsening. Supplies are limited, hospitals full to capacity, and there's a dire need to help get aid in. CBS's MTS Tayyab is in Jerusalem. International pressure is mounting on Israel and Egypt to ease the humanitarian crisis that's unfolding across Gaza after more than a week of unprecedented strikes on the Palestinian territory. The U.S. has been pushing the Israeli government to allow aid into Gaza and for Egypt to reopen the Rafah crossing to let people evacuate. President Biden is considering a trip to Israel. He told 60 Minutes a new occupation of Gaza, though, would be a big mistake. Hamas and the extreme elements of Hamas don't represent all the Palestinian people. And uh, I think that uh, it would be a mistake to uh, for Israel to occupy Gaza again. The death toll from both sides has now topped 4,000. Since the conflict in the Middle East, there's been a spike in hate crimes here in the U.S. Police in Illinois say a six-year-old Muslim boy was stabbed to death by his landlord. Ahmed Rakhab is with Chicago's Council on American-Islamic Relations. He knocked on the door. He attempted to choke her and said, you Muslims must die. 
just got in underway in Washington, a potential gag order for former President Trump. A judge will consider a special counsel demand that Trump be formally ordered to stop attacking potential witnesses against him. Even though inflation's still dragging us down, Americans are still planning to travel for the upcoming holidays. Bankrate.com's Ted Rossman. 77% are making some sort of changes to their travel plans because of inflation. Most commonly driving instead of flying, taking fewer trips, and picking cheaper accommodations and or destinations. It is official. Flag football is coming to the 2028 Olympics. This is a fast-paced game. The American offense already out on the field. They begin each new possession from their own five-yard line, and it's Hoosh-Doucet going deep for the big fella. Five sports were added. Cricket is back. Baseball and softball, lacrosse and squash also are confirmed for the games in Los Angeles. Markets are open for business on Wall Street. The Dow is up 243 points. This is CBS News. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Because Indeed's all-in-one hiring solution helps you attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Visit Indeed.com credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or from a former client? Maybe an outdated news article or sensitive personal information about your family? Search engines don't always get it right. But right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair. Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top, helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free Reputation Report Card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401-6681. A museum is making a change about human remains. New York's Museum of Natural History says it will remove 12,000 skeletons belonging to indigenous and enslaved people. Some dug. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Plans are moving forward for a new hotel in Northampton. The Northampton Planning Board has approved a special permit for a proposed 109-room hotel and a 31-unit residential building at 115 Conn Street formerly the site of the Daily Hampshire Gazette office building. The project is expected to significantly increase traffic in the area, and the planning board had delayed their approval of the project pending adequate stormwater management plans. The permit was approved under three conditions, that it includes electric vehicle chargers, that a portion of the parking lot be replaced with grass, and that the foundation for the building be poured before a certificate of occupancy is granted. Five people were transported to Athol Hospital after a tractor lost control at a hayride and went into the pond at Silver Lake. This happened in Athol Friday night around 7.45 p.m. Athol police, fire, and EMS crews responded to the haunted hayrides, and the five people who sustained minor injuries were transported to the hospital. The incident is still under investigation, and the hayrides were canceled on Saturday. A two-alarm house fire broke out in Shelburne Falls Road in Conway Saturday night. While no one was injured, a kitten was rescued by a firefighter. The garage where the fire is believed to have started was burned down, and the adjacent section of the home sustained significant damage, and most of the residents' possessions were destroyed. 
Mostly cloudy today, scattered showers, a little bit of a breeze, and a high of 56 to 60. Chance for an early evening sprinkle, otherwise variable clouds tonight. Evening temperatures in the 40s and 50s, an overnight low of 38 to 44. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, 56 to 60. Low 60s and dry on Wednesday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And with us this morning, Bill, is uh, geez, one of my favorite organizations that just is uh, so important to so many um, people and their families, the Cancer Connection, and its executive director is with us uh, today. So uh, hello. How are you, Chelsea Klein? Good morning. I am fine. Thank you for having me, Buzz and Bill. It is always so nice to see you, but you have a very special event coming up, not too distant future. That's right. We have our annual harvest dinner coming up this Friday, October 20th at Quan Quan Orchard in Waitley, and we have a few tickets left. Um. What's a few quick tickets left mean? Mm, well, <laughs> we only have a handful, and we would love to have a full house. So I wanted to make sure that people had an opportunity to get a ticket. If they go to our website, cancer-connection.org, they can find out how to get a ticket. Tell us a little bit about the Harvest Dinner. Absolutely. Well, we are very excited because it is being hosted by the entire Western Mass uh, legislative delegation this year. So we will have Senator Paul Mark speaking. We will have Representatives Lindsay Sabadosa and Natalie Blaze speaking, and also Congressman McGovern, all showing their support for Cancer Connection and the important services that we provide. We will have a silent auction, and we even have a African safari being auctioned off this year. Stop it. <laughs> you do? Isn't that wild? That is just too wild. How did you come by this African safari oh, auction? Well, we have a pretty amazing uh, silent auction committee. We actually have two members of the silent auction committee are part of our um, one of our star sponsors, which is Florence Bank, and they were able to um, help us make this happen, and they were able to secure that donation of the, of the African safari for us. So it's a really exciting, lovely event with a really fun silent auction and beautiful dinner from Wheelhouse Caterers. Can people see the silent auction items uh, beforehand? Yes, they can. Okay. Go to our website. Okay, this is not exactly a fastball, you know, with the, okay. It's a, it's a soft, it's a soft. It's a marshmallow. Pitch. It's a marshmallow pitch, but tell us how we can see what the items are. An African safari? I'd like to see that. <laughs> well, please go to our website and, and learn more about the silent auction and also find out how to get tickets. And thank you so much for having me today. Well, I just want to go a little bit further with oh. you, Chelsea Klein, as a director of Cancer Connection. For anybody who doesn't know what Cancer Connection is and what it does, I think it's just, let's take a sober moment and just describe what you do. Thank you. We... Um, our mission is to provide a haven for people who are experiencing cancer and also their loved ones and their caregivers. And what that means is we provide absolutely free services and support groups and integrative therapies for anyone who's going through it right now. We also have emotional one-on-one um, -on -one support for people called befriending, and they can call us or, or email us and have time with one of our trained um, special befrienders to receive that support. And like I said, that we have many support groups from like knitting to writing to more specialized focus groups. Um, and we have a lot of one-off programs, like we've had cooking with Paul Sustic from Paul and Elizabeth. So we do all kinds of different supports and therapies for people who are, who are experiencing cancer. It's really hard not to recognize the importance of what uh, Cancer Connection does, what it means to this region. So one more time for those few tickets left. 
Tell us when it's going to be and how people can get tickets. Friday, October 20th. That's this Friday at Quanquant Farms in Waitley. And you can go to our website, cancer-connection.org. Chelsea Klein, as always, thank you for sharing that information. With thank us you so much. Grab those tickets and look at that silent auction and start bidding. Um, with us today, there's going to be a community forum on the Ukraine uh, war that's going to be happening at uh, 630 Tonight at Forbes Library, and with us to talk about it is John Berkowitz and uh, Tom Wiener. Let me start with you, Tom. Could you tell us about the forum? Sure. Thanks for having us both. Uh, at 6.30 p.m. at Forbes Library, we're going to have a forum that is going to address two key questions. Uh, we, we've been feeling that for months, for longer, that the war in Ukraine has been uh, either less than understood clearly or misunderstood with all the misinformation and disinformation. So our purpose is to really hit the facts, get out as much of the actual story as possible through the panelists we're going to have. The two questions are, what caused the war in Ukraine and what U.S. policy should be going forward? There'll be other questions getting addressed as well, but those are the ones that we've kind of advertised in our uh, promotional material. So in order to do that, we've invited four panelists. Uh, two will take the position of uh, calling for a ceasefire and negotiations as soon as possible. And those two are uh, Howard Friel and uh, Patricia Hines. Howard's an author and uh, has been writing about the war since, it, since the day before it began. And uh, Patricia Hines is a former director of Trap Rock and a peace activist. And on the other side, we're going to have two more panelists, John Pfeffer, who works for the Institute for Policy Studies, and uh, Alina Parker, a UMass professor who is from the Ukraine, who will be essentially presenting the reasons to keep on keeping on the way things are going in terms of supporting the war in Ukraine. And this will be moderated by Daily Hampshire Gazette. Uh Actually, yeah, yes, Sarah Weinberger. Sarah Weinberger has agreed to moderate. So let me turn to you, John Berkowitz. Um, why do you think it's important for people to attend this forum? Well, I just want to take note what's happening in another part of the world in the last 10 days is, you know, it casts a huge pall of tragedy and awfulness. And yet the Ukraine war has been going on for a year and a half. And it's almost uh, people forget, you know, how awful that is. There's been a, something like half a million soldiers and then a number of civilians, obviously, as well, with all the displacement, the bombings and everything like that. So a year and a half into this war and a lot of American tax dollars into this war, something like $150 billion so far, we just thought, thought it was really time to take stock uh, and hold a community forum, bring it into the public eye and discuss it. Which is the best way to bring about peace? Which direction should we be going in? Continue the way the Biden administration is going, or are there other alternatives? Will there be uh, an opportunity for attendees, uh, John Berkowitz, to actually ask questions? Is this a Q&A format, or are you just going to listen to panelists 
uh, talk to each other. You're right, Buzz, the, the former. Uh, the panelists do go for seven minutes each, and then they have two minutes on top of that to just respond to what they heard from each other. And that leaves about 25 minutes. In uh, Forbes Library closes at 8, unfortunately. We could go, this, this issue deserves lots more time, but we have from 6.30 to 8. So there'll be about 25 minutes of Q&A with the audience. Lots of questions, and the, the panelists can respond briefly to those questions or comments. Tom Weiner, why did you think um, uh, that it is important to hear two different sides of the same issue? Well, before I answer that, I want to mention, because I don't think I did, that it's also being live-streamed on Forbes's website, their YouTube channel. So if those who can't come in, I think there are only 40 seats. We're hoping for a significant crowd, but whoever is unable to come will be able to see it live. And they're also agreeing to set up chairs out in the hall and also live stream it in another room if we get that kind of turnout. Of course, it's impossible to predict. Uh, as far as why I think it's important, uh, John has said that this is a, a major commitment on the part of our country to support Ukraine in their efforts to regain territory that Russia has invaded. Uh, and the, the idea that there's so much out in the, in the ether that is either uh, promoting inaccurate information or uh, definitely trying to rev up more conflict and controversy and division in our country, we felt, hey, this is an opportunity in this community to hear from people who have really been paying a great deal of attention and have a lot of informed ideas to share about what it is that they're feeling about this war at this, time, at this moment. Is your focus what the U.S. involvement should be? Tom Weiner? Uh, I... Because the second question is, what should U.S. policy be going forward? It is a key element, and this is our country. So, yeah, I think it's really important that we think about the U.S. role. But it is a war involving two other countries who are going to be making all the decisions. The case could certainly be made that Ukraine is relying on us and the uh, countries that we've helped put together for to be their allies. So there's many ways in which, once again, the U.S. is... Is, is featured prominently. I know before we went on the air, Tom Weiner, you said to me that you really didn't want to talk about your personal view, your take on the war. You really wanted to keep your and John Berkowitz's views out of it. Maybe I want to ask this question of Bill Newman, which is uh, I read in, in Politico about what the consequences would be, particularly given what's <coughs> happened in Israel and uh, Gaza now. Um, what the political consequences of Russia winning this war would mean for this administration, for its ability to have influence in the world. Do you have any thoughts about that, Bill? Yeah. How many hours do we have? I, I think, in a nutshell, that much as I abhor war and violence, that this is, in fact, writ large, a just war. This is an invasion by an imperialist power, Russia, uh, run by a, a dictator who is a murderer and a thug and will do whatever is necessary and he can get away with to subjugate other people. And therefore, this war, horrifying as it is, is a war that needs to be fought. Well, but what do you really think, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to agree with you. And I wonder what happens to U.S. Uh, influence if, in fact, it allows Russia uh, to goose step 
Uh, I'm, I'm less worried about U.S. influence. I, I am concerned about uh, Russian influence, and I am concerned about uh, having taken a position that we will not allow this invasion to succeed and then walking away from it. I think that's a horrifying result. So, John Berkowitz, um, tell us more about your plans. Is there going to be just this one community forum on the Ukraine tonight? Uh, it, and it, once again, it's going to be at Forbes Library. It's going to begin at 6.30. Um, and uh, after the colon, after Ukraine war is what caused Russia's invasion and what should U.S. policy be to help bring peace? Is this the one forum you intend to plan to have? At this point, it's a one-off, but I feel like it's such an important issue, and everything that you and Bill just said about your own views uh, needs to be aired, discussed, because there's an awful lot of life at stake. There's an awful lot of life has already been lost. Is there any other way forward without continuing? I'm going to call it carnage, and it just distresses me so deeply to see so much loss of life. What would negotiations look like? Uh, is there a way out of this? That, that's what we want to just hold up to the, to the public uh, around here and all over the country. This should, should be happening. Uh, what's the best path towards peace at this point? Could I ask a substantive question? I won't ask you for your positions, but I would appreciate understanding this. What people, what experts on our show have said in, in the months that are coming up to today is that this negotiation, when and if it ever happens, is going to be determined by the placement on in, in, of, of troops on the ground in Ukraine at the time, and that what everyone is fighting for is the best possible position to be in when negotiation starts. Do you agree with that? Do you have a few hours? <laughs> I mean, that seems whoa. to be the question of the hour. No, I, I'm not. I'm being facetious on the one hand, but serious on the other hand. I'm feeling. I hope both of you can either come or watch live stream, because the positions you've taken are definitely powerful, compelling positions, and they're not the only ones. Nor is anybody, I think, tonight going to say, "Let's just withdraw all support and." drop Ukraine like a hot potato. Although there are Republicans who are saying exactly that. And there are strange bedfellows in this conversation, you would acknowledge. So yes, that's part of why we want to have this, because we want to sort out where things are coming from and the reasons for them. Because the people who are taking the different positions aren't just going to be talking about what's happening today. They're going to look and, and analyze, as they have been for a year and a half at least, how did we get here? And how we got here is important for how we're going to go forward. But in terms of your question, in terms of negotiations being based on who has, what positions people have at the day that they're announced, that's another thing that's totally up for grabs. Because who knows what the different things are going to be re relating to negotiations. I, I, there are many positions to take. You could take the position that tomorrow we make sure that Ukraine, with our support, declare ceasefire and whatever those positions are, that's where negotiations start from. Or there could be negotiations that start from the only time we're going to be able to negotiate is with we know you're going to withdraw from the Donbass. You know, I mean, it's just there's so many different scenarios. But I think we're going to be looking tonight at the two essential positions that we're aware of. Call for ceasefire negotiations. Keep on fighting. Well, Tom Weiner, let me turn, turn to your colleague, um, John Berkowitz, because, John, you began this conversation about tonight's community forum on the Ukraine war by um, bringing, by pointing to the obvious, which is there's another war that's 
coming from Israel and Gaza, and uh, which we're all holding our breath to watch how many more atrocities we have to observe and uh, to watch whether or not that skirmish becomes skirmish. That war grows in terms of the geopolitical influence that it's going to, the ripples that it's going to cause around the world. I'm wondering whether you began there because, uh, let me ask the question, should that change our attention vis-a-vis Ukraine, the fact that there's this other literally battleground that's grabbing our attention? There's tragedy, death, and destruction in both places now. Uh, They're both legitimate sources for our country to be concerned about and involved in and try to stop the carnage. Uh, So neither one, it's just the the, the latest one in Israel-Palestine, and of course it's been an ongoing situation for 75 years, uh, just getting worse and worse, and now look where it's it's about as worse as it's ever been, and possibly getting much worse. But the Ukraine war has been going for a year and a half, I mean, the hot war part of it, uh, with Russia invading. Uh, Before that it was going in Ukraine, uh, the Donbass and the Ukrainian central government, and uh, it's been going a while. So we, we've got both on our hands. We've got, we've got both of American support, strong support uh, around the world, and uh, we need to look at it and, and look at what is the best path to peace, what kind of negotiations, what, what, what might it look like. And I want to add one more thing. Uh, Sixty years ago uh, in June, President John F. Kennedy gave a speech at American University in which he said, and this was at the height of the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis had just happened, and I mean, a few months ago, eight months ago, and we almost uh, had a, a, confl- a conflagration, you know, Russia, U- USSR, USA, blowing the, the, each other up and the rest of the world at the same time. I think it really sobered him up so much that he gave that speech, and he said, we don't have to agree with anything the Soviet Union stands for, communism, all that, but we sure need to learn, we sure need to talk with them. We need dialogue. And that's partly what I believe personally. Uh, we need more negotiations because we were both nuclear armed superpowers. And I'm afraid of the possible escalation. That's a whole nother picture behind this Ukraine war that what if the two superpowers, NATO, US, and uh, Russia, get into a d- deeper and nuclear weapons start being considered. That's, that's awful. We need to head that off somehow. That's why we need to find a way to negotiate and, and bring this war to some kind of conclusion that's fair and just and peaceful. This will be what's discussed at tonight's community forum on the Ukraine war. What caused Russia's invasion? What should U.S. policy be to help bring peace? It's going to be tonight, October 16th, 6.30, Forbes Library. Wonderful panel wonderful moderator be there thanks for having us on you ain't worth the blood that runs in your veins how much do you're I know? listening to talk the talk with bill newman and buzz eisenberg 20 years ago we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet now pv squared celebrates a big milestone Two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. 
Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money, which is true. But as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information and the Arts. Get takeout, save 30%. Get candles or hit the links, save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to Talk the Talk. We were just talking about uh, tonight's community forum on the Ukraine war um, with two organizers of that forum. And Bill, I asked you a question um, while we were talking about the Ukraine about uh, whether or not uh, Russia prevailing in the war against Ukraine would have uh, an impact on U.S. authority, U.S. influence in the world. And you responded, well, it would have a tragic impact on Russia having increased um, influence on the world. And I was uh, asking that question because I read this political argument that was reminiscing about how Ronald Reagan's lustrous uh, image uh, among Republicans in part came from the Soviet Union happening to fall apart during his presidency and the impact political asserts of having Biden's administration tarnished by losing Ukraine to Russia. Um, any thoughts in that regard on your part? Yeah, I'm not concerned about the Biden administration being tarnished. I'm concerned about Ukrainians having to live under the thumb of a uh, totalitarian dictator, it's Putin, and Putin took over Crimea because the United States didn't do anything, and that emboldened him in significant measure uh, to take over the Donbass and to try to, in fact, decapitate the Ukrainian government. He had a plan. It failed. And now we're in a war, and uh, I think the negotiations and a ceasefire is a fabulous idea to have a negotiation, you need at least two parties who want to talk, and so far there are neither. Uh, neither parties want to talk. And even if you could convince the uh, uh, Ukrainian government that the call for a ceasefire and we'll just leave the troops in place where they are and now we should start negotiating was a good idea, which I think they doubt since they've lost 20% of the country, that would, I think, embolden Putin to say, okay, we got the 20, and we'll stop right here, and we'll call it a day, and we'll invade some other time. 
I mean, I, I, it, it doesn't make much sense to me to say uh, there should be a ceasefire without having some idea about why the other side is going to negotiate. There are all these indications that uh, even North Korea, certainly Iran, there are other countries that are, that are alleged to be providing arms because Russia's warehouse is getting empty. Um, are you concerned about this becoming a much broader war, particularly with what's happening in Israel and Gaza, that uh, the United States becomes embroiled in a, just a way, an intractable way in these wars? I am, I should say. Okay, well, tell us, tell us, tell us your concerns. My concerns are that we are a warlike country, that we have um, a vested capitalist interest in producing and selling. Um, every one of those Patriot missiles that we've seen exploding in the sky, that's $1.3 million that goes uh, to uh, the manufacturer, the Massachusetts manufacturer of those armaments that we, um, what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex, sort of loves war. And I am uh, somebody who loathes war and loathes the idea of the United States making the same kind of missteps that it always seems to me. 9-11, we had the world's attention. We had the world's sympathy. We decided, hey, this is a good time for us to blow up a whole lot of people and lose the sympathies and the empathy that we were earning as a result of being victims of 9-11 and handling it in what we thought was going to be a better way. That's what we seem to do, and that's my concern, that we fall into a war-like World War Three kind of posture. Well, I, I, that's apocryphal, um, and it certainly is a possibility. And I think the idea that the Biden administration is just waiting to start a bigger war is nuts. Um, and it's the last thing that the Biden administration wants, and it's the last thing the Biden administration wanted was to see this conflagration that's happening in uh, Israel and Palestine today. Uh, I think it is highly dangerous, and I think there could be a broader war, and I'm more, much more concerned about what happens in the Middle East than I am about Ukraine at this point. Well, on those light notes, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we've got Megan Zinn. It's her What You're Reading segment, and she's going to be here with GCC Technology former head, Laura Tilsley, and with the retired Smith Professor of Government, Velma Garcia, right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Plans are moving forward for a new hotel in Northampton. The Northampton Planning Board has approved a special permit for a proposed 109-room hotel and a 31-unit residential building at 115 Conn Street, formerly the site of the Daily Hampshire Gazette office building. The project is expected to significantly increase traffic in the area, and the Planning Board had delayed their approval of the project pending adequate stormwater management plans. The permit was approved under three conditions, that it includes electric vehicle chargers, that a portion of the parking lot be replaced with grass, and that the foundation for the building be poured before a certificate of occupancy is granted. 
Five people were transported to Athol Hospital after a tractor lost control at a hayride and went into the pond at Silver Lake. This happened in Athol Friday night around 7.45 p.m. Athol police, fire, and EMS crews responded to the haunted hayrides, and the five people who sustained minor injuries were transported to the hospital. The incident is still under investigation, and the hayrides were canceled on Saturday. A two-alarm house fire broke out in Shelburne Falls Road in Conway Saturday night. While no one was injured, a kitten was rescued by a firefighter. The garage where the fire is believed to have started was burned down, and the adjacent section of the home sustained significant damage, and most of the residents' possessions were destroyed. Mostly cloudy today, scattered showers, a little bit of a breeze, and a high of 56 to 60. Chance for an early evening sprinkle, otherwise variable clouds tonight. Evening temperatures in the 40s and 50s, an overnight low of 38 to 44. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, 56 to 60, low 60s and dry on Wednesday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Jazz isn't kids stuff, yet the Emmett Cohen Trio is positively playful with a musically adventurous spirit. They're bringing it to UMass October 19th. The pure joy of creative expression. Jazz fans the world over know it when they hear it, and they hear it when Emmett plays. Emmett Cohen Trio at UMass with South Hadley native Joe Farnsworth on drums and Philip Norris on bass. Young and daring musical energy moving the jazz tradition forward. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center website. The Emmett Cohen Trio, Thursday, October 19th, Falker Auditorium at UMass Amherst. A food co-op is a different kind of grocery store. A credit union is a different kind of bank. Co-ops and credit unions are owned by the people who shop and bank there. Keep it close to home with local co-ops, credit unions, and worker-owned co-ops. Just $3 a month and you're a member of the Franklin Community Co-op, Greenfields Market, and McCusker's Market. You live here, you eat here. Be a member. Three bucks a month. McCusker's, Greenfields, your Franklin Community Co-op. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. If they ask me, I could write a book about the way you walk, whisper and look. Walk up music for our own literata, <laughs> Megan Zinn. And Megan, you have innovated. You have uh, brought us this wonderful segment, which comes periodically called Hey, what you reading? What you reading? Which I haven't done in several months, so I'm very excited. Um, so my guests for what you reading are Laura Tilsley Garcia and Velma Garcia. Welcome. Hello. Well, thanks for having us. Thanks. So so glad you're here. Um, so Laura is the recently retired 
CIO um, and Vice President of Information Technology and Library Services at Greenfield Community College. And more, more importantly, Laura and I are on the same trivia team. Um, and uh, Velma is a Professor Emerita of Government at Smith College. And Velma, what was your area of specialty? My specialty was Latin American politics. Okay. Um, but I think today what I want to do is talk a little bit more about my translation work. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask about uh, that. And, and while you brought it up, we can, we can mention it and then talk more about what you've been um, reading. Um, you are, I had some notes on this. Um, you have been translating, um, it's a sort of literary pursuit of translating um, the work of Chilean poet and Nobel laureate Gabriela Mistral, correct? I'm not sure That's if I'm right. pronouncing it right. That's I probably good. gave it the French pronunciation. That's good. Um, can you tell us about that and how it came about? So uh, even though you know I'm a political scientist, I have a PhD in political science, but when I was an undergraduate at Smith College a long time ago, I was actually a double major in Spanish literature oh. and, and mm -hmm. government political science. So now, late in life, um, I return to my love of literature in Latin America, and I especially have focused on Gabriela Mistral. Um, she, I think, is a, a really, really brilliant poet who has been forgotten, mm -hmm. I think, for a lot of reasons, including uh, just uh, discrimination against her as a woman and um, actually as a queer woman. Yeah, okay. Um, so I started translating her about uh, eight years ago, mm -hmm. and the first thing I did was translated uh, some letters between that she had written to her romantic partner, Doris okay. Dana, mm -hmm. who's an American. Um, those letters had been hidden for about 50 years. Interesting. Uh, and they came out, and so they were published in the original Spanish, mm -hmm. and I translated them, and in, the book came out in 2018. Um, so that's, that's the first fantastic. thing I did. Yeah, and then yeah. recently, I, together with a colleague, also translated her last book of poetry oh, wow. okay. called Poema de Chile. So those projects took me four years and five yeah. years. And, and translating poetry is an art all of, in, in, all of itself. Yes. And since I'm not a poet, uh, <laughs> I did this as a team with, oh, with, with one other person, mm -hmm. Kate Burson, okay. who, um, whom I met at UMass. Um, and so the two of us together translated this book of poetry. That's so exciting. So cool. Well, can um, I just follow up yeah. on that, Megan? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. I've thought about it so much. Uh, I'm probably 75% fluent in Spanish at this point. Um, and I lose more every day. <laughs> but when I think about poetry, I think about it isn't just the content of the message that you're trying to convey through a poem. Mm -hmm. It is also the musicality, yep. the rhythmic mm -hmm. nature, the allegory, whatever it is that the poet chooses to use. How do you do that in a different language? How do you make the words work? Um, so we, the two of us, you know, I, I was not in charge of the actual uh Form of poetry. Poet, That's yeah, okay. my colleague Kate Burson, uh, who lives in Pittsburgh, by the way. Mm -hmm. Shout out to Kate. Um, so, what we what we we didn't try to actually. You cannot actually mimic, especially a language that is different, a Romance language like Spanish into English. You can't do it. Um, you it, you can't do it literally. So what we tried is to make sure that we understood as best as possible what she was trying to say in the poetry, and then try to convey that in English as best we could, and we had, we had different strategies. Um, but I think that uh, you know, it's a, it was very, it's very challenging, first of all, to translate poetry for anyone, but Gabriela Mistral has a vast, vast, vast vocabulary. Mm. And mm -hmm. she was from a rural background in Chile. She was born in 1889, died in 1957. And so not only is she using you know, her vast vocabulary in Spanish, but she also refers to 
Greek, obscure Greek mythology, mm-hmm. um, the Hebrew Bible, you know, all of these things. And so it, it's, it was, it's quite a challenge. It's but, quite a challenge. I just, I just want to follow up what I was saying, and I understand that this was not necessarily your mission, because somebody else's mission. Right. But I remember when I, I first read a poem in Spanish that I understood, the word that was used was transnochar, which mm-hmm. means... And I asked, what does that mean? I didn't know. And it was to pull an all-nighter. Yeah. <laughs> the beauty of to pull an all-nighter compared to to pass the night to transnochar, yeah. it just doesn't work. Yeah. Well, that's a be- kind of a beautiful word, though. <laughs> um, well, well, and part of the reason I wanted to talk to um, Laura and Velma is because they both retired recently. So they have more time for pursuits like this. And particularly, you know, from, from my interest in reading, um, I feel like, um, you know, um, what for for readers retirement must be the dream come true when you can finally read what you want to read when you want to read and you can make that your priority so that's what i was really interested in and um and you've both been retired for a few months more for you velma right one um month, one month, month more for velma one month yeah. more um and how how has retiring changed your reading or how, or how do you hope it will change your reading let's start with laura um well i think i'll say how i hope it has changed my reading because I'm not exactly sure uh, I've been retired long enough yet for it to fully take effect. Um, but, you know, I, I certainly am hopeful that my stack of unread books will get smaller, uh, that I'll be able to have a little more of a broad range of what I want to read, because I tend to gravitate towards certain kinds of books. And um, then there may be other books outside those genres that I just feel I don't have time for. Um, and so I'm, I'm very hopeful about that. I, I actually have uh, made more progress on my stack in the last few months than I normally would have if I were working. Excellent. Um, so that's a good sign. Uh, but it, in a lot of ways, it feels like we're still adjusting yeah. to the new non-schedule of being retired and yeah. what that means. So yeah. we'll see. And you, how about you, Velma? How's it affecting your reading? Uh, so I think Laura, maybe will in a minute talk about, she likes to read um, books about science. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to read fiction mm-hmm. and obviously poetry. Um, so I've been able to, I, I feel so free. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been able to read uh, a couple of Latin American women writers, current writers, mm-hmm. people might be interested in. Uh, oh, pl- it, you know, please tell us. Yeah, yeah one is uh, Mariana Enriquez and she's from Argentina. They're, she's about 50 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and she just, uh, uh, her book, her big novel just came out. It's in Spanish. It's called Nuestra Parte de Noche. And in English, it's Our Share of Night. Mm. So it recently came out. It's been reviewed in the New York Times. It's about uh, the 70, 1970s military government in Argentina, which is horrific yeah. enough in and of itself. But uh, in this novel, she also writes about a satanic cult oh. that is uh, very powerful in Argentina at the time. It's fiction, right? Okay, yeah. So um, it's, it's, a, it's not an easy read, not a light read. I did it uh, this summer when we were recovering from COVID oh, yeah. when I had lots of time. Um, so that's one writer I mm-hmm. recommend. Another one is uh, a Mexican named Guadalupe Nettle, N-E-T-T-E-L. And her reading is, her writing is more about sort of gender issues, disability rights, uh, about marginalized people, um, so I I would recommend um, her books. I just read uh, a book of hers called El Cuerpo en que nací in Spanish, The Body Where I Was Born. All right. It's a, a fiction. Yeah. So I really 
recommend those two. All right, wonderful. Thank you. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm speaking with um, Laura Tilsley Garcia and Velma Garcia about what they're reading, particularly now that they have retired. Um, and we'll talk uh, more after a break. The Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5 and 1400. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. I thought I was going to have to go through a hip replacement or some painful, unsuccessful surgery or be crippled the rest of my life. Electrical engineer Dan Vogler had awful arthritic pain in his hips, pain that not only affected him physically, but also emotionally, and it spilled over even to his relationships. I was almost mean. If you're in pain and other people don't sympathize with it, you're lashing out at the wrong people. But then Dan found QC Kinetics with the latest advances in regenerative medicine, non-surgical treatments with lasting relief. I felt immediate relief. I mean, within half a day, much of the inflammation and pain was down. And today, Dan says he's totally pain-free, living the life he wants. At the end of the fourth treatment, I felt pretty much healed and enthused and was raving about QC Kinetics. I can recommend them highly to anyone. Call QC Kinetics now for your free consultation. Call QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Our school communities thrive when they address students, families, and educators' well-being. That's why the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education offers schools and districts the tools to meet these needs through our Office of Student and Family Supports. Caring for each other, growing together, back to school, better. Visit doe.mass.edu slash growing together. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And Megan Zint playing What You're Reading. What You're Reading, yeah. I'm talking with Laura Tilsley Garcia and Velma Garcia, um, who have both recently retired from their jobs. Um, Velma at Smith College, a professor of government, and Laura at... Um, at GCC as a CIO and Vice President of Information Technology. Um, and so speaking of those fields, do you um, think you're going to continue reading in your professional fields or you're like, okay, I'm done with that? <laughs> um, we'll start with uh, Velma. Uh, these days, reading uh, political science books about, you know, Latin America, the border, or <laughs> the other parts of the world, it's um, it's it's really tough. You know, yeah. it's, it's tough sledding. So... I think what I'll be doing is just uh, keeping up with, mm -hmm. with the media and all that, not necessarily reading sort of theories of political science about that and uh, continuing again with my literary work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Laura, in, in sort of in, in science, computer science, um, do you think you'll continue with some of that or are you going, going in other directions? I, I think I will because, I mean, the reason I got into this mm -hmm. field is it interests me. Yeah. Uh, continues to interest me. And I'll always want to read about the intersection of technology and 
the world and humans. Um, I think to the extent that my position at GCC was also as an administrator, I'll probably read less about uh, how to be a better administrator and how to do project management better mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. Um, uh, strategic planning, all that good stuff you do as an administrator. Uh, I'll probably uh, put those books down and <laughs> <laughs> focus on the things I'm really interested in. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and um, uh, Laura, what uh, what are you reading right now? We, we heard a little bit from Velma, but what are you reading right now? Uh, right now, I'm, I'm trying to focus on two books at a time because otherwise I'll read like five or six mm -hmm. and, and I never finish them. So I've been reading a book called Wayfinding, um, mm. which is really, really interesting. Uh, it's all about sort of the history of human navigation in the world, oh, cool. as well as uh, a broader context of animal navigation, how creatures navigate the world, how our sort of Western uh, civilization has uh, changed the way that humans navigate versus the way that ancient peoples navigated. Um, it's pretty interesting. It's got, I really like it because it has this broad historical context. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I love books that tackle a subject, not just uh, in one sort of in-depth area, but look, try to look at the whole big picture. Are you talking about GPS in terms of contemporary uh, That's part of it, but it's really just, uh, you know, it goes all the way back to, uh, you know, Polynesians navigating the ocean, yeah. uh, to GPS now, to how uh, indigenous peoples in the Arctic navigate featureless landscapes mm -hmm. um, and have uh, all kinds of incredible uh, memory ability to memorize these landscapes and things that seem featureless to folks who don't live there, but actually they know how to read the patterns in the snow and um, things like that. I mean, it's, it's sort of talking about how humans have always had this ability uh, to remember place and to connect place to memory, um, but that sort of as a result of a lot of, of the culture changes that have happened as a result of industrialization, uh, we have forgotten a lot of that, or yeah. we just don't practice it anymore, uh, but that we all have that capability if we uh, know how to learn about it and practice yeah. it. Our internal GPS. I, to some I, extent, I, I, yeah. I, I, this a question. I, just have to, I haven't thought about this for 30 years, <laughs> but when, uh, when I was going to school in Philadelphia, we, uh, my, girlfriend, my then girlfriend and I went on vacation, and somebody 20 miles away took over our cat, which of course was called uh, Yen. Anyway, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and when we came back, the cat had escaped from the person who was taking care of it and found its way back to our apartment at 48th and Walton, Wow! Yep. which I thought I had heard about, but what's up with that? How yeah. do animals yeah. do that? Have you, have you learned uh, how, so how they're animals not, do So they're it? not exactly sure. I mean, obviously they study... Uh, that sort of phenomenon as well as things like bird migration or even butterfly migration, how the monarchs know how to get to, to that yeah. particular place in Mexico every year, many of which have never been there before because they're second or third generation, I believe. Um, and there's all kinds of theories about that. There's some theories about, uh, I believe there's a mineral that we all carry in all of our cells, cells that's magnetic. Um, and there's some theories that it reacts to the magnetic field of the earth. Uh, and there's some kind of instinctual response to that, but it has really not been proven. Um, and so there really isn't a definitive answer to those sorts of things, but it's clear that, you know, many creatures that are never going to have a GPS and humans among them, when we didn't have these tools, uh, were able to navigate the entire globe, more or less, uh, to get where we needed to be. Well, Megan's in, I could always find the refrigerator with no trouble. Well, there you go. 
there you go. That's that's all it's you sort need. Sort of a matter of necessity, right? <laughs> that and, and find and you find your car keys and, and you're good. Um, I, you know, I was interested. You know, given your professions, um, and um, I was wondering if either of you have recommendations of books, fiction or nonfiction, that you know we're we're, we're in a historical time that is incredibly fraught. Um, the, well, perhaps all historical times are incredibly fraught. This one feels particularly so, particularly um, with um, the events in um, the Middle East right now, in Israel and Gaza and, and Ukraine, as, as, as Buzz and Bill were talking about earlier. Do you have any books either on, on, um, on the computer side of things, on the AI side of things, or um, on the government side of things, that fiction or nonfiction, that can kind of address some of these issues, help people better understand our fraught geopolitics? Laura. I have a couple. Um, so I read a book this past year called Robot Proof, mm. uh, which was written by the president of Northeastern uh, University, who his name is Joseph. I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. It's Ayun, A-O-U-N, I believe. Um, and it's all about how to teach students in higher ed to adjust higher ed to create graduating students who are not so much trained for a particular task or profession, specifically because the pace of technological change, AI, the way that professions are being created and uh, you know becoming defunct very mm -hmm. quickly, uh, that we really need to create a more resilient type of student who has these skills of analysis, of understanding data, of being able to integrate you know, human life with technology. Um, and it's, it's pretty interesting. And the idea of the title of Robot Proof is we want students who aren't just going to be replaced by robots yes. in 20 years, right? We want whatever they learn in college to serve them uh, well throughout their lifetime. Um, so there's a lot of challenges with that, obviously. Yeah. And, and one of not the smalls of which is we are not great at predicting what's going to happen with technology. Mm -hmm. We've never been great at that. Uh, we try as best we can, but... Um, you know, we know we're not going to be 100% accurate, so we have to do the best we can. Um, another good one on just AI in general, there's one that came out from an MIT professor. Um, I'm going to have to look at his name because I've forgotten it, but it's called Life 3.0, and it's just kind of a broad-ranging treatment of AI, you know, in the 21st century, post-2020, um, how we're managing it, where we're going with it. Uh, the human aspect of it more so than the technological aspect, which I think is what most people are interested in. So I'd recommend those two books. Interesting. And uh, Velma, do you have um, any recommendations of books that fiction or nonfiction that can help us understand our world? You know, we were talking about how we have a little bit more time since we're retired to mm -hmm. read. And so one of the books that I just read that I, now that I have more time is A Wrinkle in Time. Oh, wonderful. Um, you know, I didn't read it when I was young. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I'm from a small town in South Texas. We, did, we had a hit or miss kind of library, mm -hmm. so I didn't have access to certain kinds of books. So I think this this is a really great book to come back to if you're an adult. It's it's about um, obviously a, a young girl who's heroic, but also it's about, you know, the forces of, of good and evil and the future and different, you know, planets. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, uh, for a lot of us, I think, not in my case, but for a lot of us, I think we read this book when we were very young. And I think going back to it as an adult in these times, uh, not only is it uh, enlightening, but I think uh, uplifting. 
too. Yeah, actually, I read that as an adult too. I, um, and given that it had a character named Meg, I'm surprised <laughs> I didn't read it as a kid when there was no characters named Meg, other than in Little Women. But yeah, I know it's also a great book on um, leadership as mm-hmm. well. Yes, um, it comes up in Ted Lasso because of that. It's uh, <laughs> mentioned in that way. Um, in in the last minute that we have, I'm, I'm talking with um, Laura Tilsey Garcia and Velma Garcia about what they're reading. And um, in just the last minute that we have. Um, what is, can you, can you mention, I mean, this might be more for Velma because you're more of a fiction reader, but um, a favorite fictional character. Well, I think for now it's Meg it's Murray. Meg, <laughs> Meg Murray. And <laughs> Having time. Just read this book, mm-hmm. You know, it's so, uh, she's such a wonderful character because, you know, she is spunky. She's a young girl who won't take sort of, she won't accept her, her place. Mm-hmm. You know, in society would tell her that she's subordinate because she's a girl and she resists all of that. She may not be as brilliant brilliant as her brother, but she's able to. She has other skills yeah. together with her intelligence. So, I think Meg Murray is is uh, my go. hero right now. There we go, Lord. Do you have um, either fiction or maybe even a non-fictional character who who you love? Well, I do read some fiction, and mm-hmm. I will have to say that um, probably my favorite all-time character is Joe from Little Women. Since oh, you mentioned spe- Little Women, speaking so. of Little Women, yeah, and speaking <laughs> of uh, young women who, at a time when it was when they were not didn't have much um access to really professional life or education and and she really just stomped right over that border absolutely both both she and and louise may alcott her creator wonderful well i've been talking with um laura tilsey garcia and velma garcia about what they're reading um what they're reading in retirement um and it's it's been a pleasure thank you so much for joining us today thank Thank you you for having us great Nice. And congratulations on your retirement, both of you. Thank, thank you. you. And thank you, non-fictional Megan Zinn. <laughs> <laughs> I am but, nonfiction. It's so, true. Uh, in the 20 seconds we have, what you reading? Oh, what am I reading? Ah, um, I just... Um, well, I just finished reading the book, the author um, I was speaking with last week, which was Amy Chua and her book, um, The Golden Gate, which I really loved. So I'll she just, really loves. I'll Everybody else, that. thank you for listening to us here on Talk to Talk. Remember today, walk the walk. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Rutabaga, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Bacon Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Bacon's many programs and services help companion animals. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station.